Hello, welcome to another episode of Unpacking Neuroqueerness. Uh, as some of you may have noticed, um, this is the 90th episode, and it's also the six-month anniversary of this podcast. Uh, started it in October 20 on October 23rd of 2022. Um, and this is going to be released on April 23rd of 2023. Um, so today I have my friend X and I, uh, I have my friend X back on the podcast and X and I are going to talk about dealing with neurodistinct burnout and energy regulation. I'm also going to ask them, I'm going to start by asking them some questions that I haven't asked them before during our previous two episodes. If you haven't checked those out, be sure to check those out, episodes 40 and 65. Um, anyways, um, welcome back, X. Oh, thanks for having me. I didn't know I was here on a special occasion, but thank you. Mm, of course, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it would be too much pressure if I, if I told you that. that yeah. Thanks so much. <laughs> so, um... What were, I have my first question for you today is, um, what were your first experience with neurodistinct burnout and how did you notice it differed from most of your peers? Um, I think it's interesting to look back at my childhood through the lens of ADHD or neurodivergency um, because there's things that occasionally will still come back to you like, oh, so when I was not capable of sitting down in class, it wasn't just that I was an idiot sort of thing. There's those, but that happens on a daily basis as you remember your childhood. So there's a lot that I'm sure I don't remember. Um, burnout. Well, there's, there's one that I don't even remember that my mom tells me about, and it's both burnout and actual like rug burn. Which was I? I'm not sure how old I was, but I wasn't. I was a really, really little baby, and I was at the point where I could flip, which is very exciting mm -hmm. to me, apparently. But I couldn't walk yet, and so my mom just kept flipping me back over, and I refused to just lie there and do nothing. So I would flip myself back over on the floor, and I would kick my legs so hard that I'd give myself carpet burn on my forehead, and then I'd cry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So that was, if, if you want to talk about burnout, that's the most literal definition of it in yeah. retrospect. Um, I think going into school maybe is more, uh, is something other people, my words aren't happening, something other people can relate to. I think watch like being at sleepovers with other girls, and I'd mostly be fine for most of the day. Because you go to a kid's birthday party, you're six, seven years old. Um, there's lots of other kids there. It's someone else's house. You don't know what all the rules are. Yeah. You know where the bathroom is. You don't know where the snacks are. You don't know when you're allowed to have snacks. There's supposed to be some sort of birthday celebration schedule. You don't know what it's meant to be. Also, I was a Russian kid going to an international school, and some of these birthdays were kids from the American embassy, and they had their own sort of, like, cake and different games that I wasn't aware of. Mm. Yeah. All of that was fun. I still had no idea what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going through this day where we're doing like glitter trees and then beading and then we have to play charades and then it's just 
task after task after task, which as someone, as an ADHD, I loved. And then we would be asked to all sort of sleep in one room in sleeping bags and we'd watch a movie. And I remember at that point, one, my, it was already taking meds about six, seven years old. So that would have worn off by then. Um, and all the effort of trying to figure out what was going to happen when and what was socially acceptable was so much that I just couldn't take it anymore. And at the same time, I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could really be myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I used to get terrible homesickness. Well, not really, because it's not that so much that I wanted my parents as much as I wanted my own space. Yeah. And there have been a lot of times where my parents would have to send someone in the 1 a.m. to some place in you know Moscow, which is a huge city, to collect me because I just was not having it. <laughs> yeah, you know. I can relate to that feeling like when I would go to a party at, at someone else's house um, and, you know, like, it, there is the whole thing, like, I felt this as an autistic person, too, it's about, like, what's the, the dynamic, what are the rules, you know, where, and, and, and do I feel comfortable? Because even if it's like, oh, yeah, welcome, just, just hang out here, just, just, the kitchen is right here, and this and that, and that's great, like, I appreciate that, but I'm like, I don't feel comfortable necessarily yet because it's just like so new and and foreign to me and I guess as I get more comfortable like um I mean also the situation for me like as um being at a large gap I think because I was much younger too and I I was like just it was a very different phase in my life where I was more trying to fit in Um, and, uh, yeah, I just felt weird, like, I remember always feeling weird, like, at other people's houses, but especially, like, as a younger child, because I just didn't feel like, because I, I know that neurotypicals, it's like, they will, there are all these things that they will say, but they don't really, there's like these social codes, you know, like they'll say things, but they don't really mean it. Yeah, your um, house is lovely. I love that shag mm-hmm. carpet with the dog yeah. vomit on it. That's really sweet and homely. <laughs> like, you know, that's sort of yeah. exaggeration, but it is that. And part of it, I think, um, did you feel as a kid that, like you were noticing other people be uncomfortable. Oh my goodness, yes. And you were and you were just going like, right, I'm supposed to mimic you. I, I'm assuming from your situation because I didn't yeah. think this way. But it was like, but you don't seem happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's just like... like this is not what I want to be. Because <laughs> they would be like, um, I, this thing would happen a lot, I feel, and I'm, like where I would... Um, I feel like I would make myself too comfortable because I wouldn't understand. Like, if people would be, like, would tell me to make myself comfortable or... You take them at their word. You take them at their (laughs) word, and you never know. It's like, okay, I know it has some meaning, but it's like, how much does it, like, what level? Like, how much is it appropriate to you for me to ask you... Into, and it's like it's not even about one specific thing about like oh how much 
um, juice can I have or how many snacks can I have? It's like, um, like the last cart you need, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to explain to a couple of my autistic friends when I was younger. Um, they were like, "So how much juice are you supposed to drink if it's the last packet of juice?" And they say you can have all the juice, like one of those big cartons. Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Well." If it's, you want to leave at least a third. Like, if you don't know if anyone else wants it, you leave at least a cup. Yeah. Pretty good rule. Uh-huh. Which I never had to think about before, because I was just yeah. like, you don't finish other people's stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, that makes yeah. sense. And it's also like, yeah, like, that's another thing. Yeah. Just like, and I wish, I don't know. I just wish these things were more clear. Like, because now I've kind of figured that out, like, over time. But it's like as a child and like when you're not when when it feels like most other kids are just kind of figuring this stuff out like automatically um it's like I wasn't and it just I don't know like it would have been nice thinking back there is actually quite important because on the sorry to interrupt you Mm -hmm. but you're the on the one hand you they probably weren't as it wasn't as automatic for them as I think you might have felt it was right because kids are I felt it uh, once for them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas for you, you were just figuring out other stuff. <laughs> yeah, I was figuring it's out It's the prioritization a lot. of what people think is socially mm-hmm. required, and sometimes they're right. Like, maybe don't, you know, pull your pants down in the living room is probably mm-hmm. a decent thing to learn quite quickly, right? Mm-hmm. Even though if a kid does that technically, there's nothing wrong with that. They're a kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's running around with, you know, free air going everywhere. Like, it's... Yeah. But, you know, there's certain social rules that, although it don't make sense, kids should be allowed to just run around in homes and yeah. wear whatever they mm-hmm. want. Um, that's one of them where, like, it doesn't really make sense that we have to make kids do that because they'll probably learn their own that they won't do that in public, but it's a rule here. Yeah. Right? Versus someone saying, oh, you can't, you know, shaming you if someone says get comfortable and you decide to do somersaults on the couch. Yeah, like that. Because I can see autistic kids you know doing that like i would do that maybe if if i were like oh okay be comfortable hey, couch, absolutely i yeah. would <laughs> yeah like, if it was a nice soft couch i would be doing little rolls and jumping and you know and stuff like that because that's what's allowed and then having someone come up and say oh why on earth are you doing this this is terrible I'm like you said okay. you would make yourself comfortable yeah right so you're like, okay so mm-hmm. no jumping on the couch yeah, yeah <laughs> and, I- yeah, <laughs> and then there's this list, and you're sort of like, "Well, is it worth me being so nervous that I can't do anything that I don't even go to the bathroom in your house?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it, it kind of leaves me feeling like that after, like, if that were to have a situation like that, I'm like, "Oh, okay, so I'm more on edge now." Like, and I and feel this. Yeah, make mistakes when that happens too. If you're on edge, I mean, mm-hmm. whether you're or have or an ad here like, the bathroom but the amount of anxiety i would have about like in the middle of the night would i wake someone up yeah i would mm-hmm. you know fall over things and not notice things because i was so so focused on trying not to step with my full weight on the floorboard that i wouldn't yeah. notice there was a cat <laughs> you know yeah and it's all those tiny little things that, that do cause the burnout. It's not just that you don't, you know, people are difficult because mm-hmm. everyone's difficult and some people are lovely and it it's all depends on the person. It's that mm-hmm. if 
you're not constantly overthinking everything because the criticism or the shame is so incredibly powerful at that young age that you can't enjoy yourself then other people can sense it and then it gets more awkward and then you're stuck in this perpetual sort of social cycle of why is everyone else anxious i'm anxious they're anxious and we're all anxious i should leave now i need to leave now mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> you know? yeah i felt that happen yeah that's what that's what that burnout is it's i can no longer at least for me can i just Mm -hmm. need to not be perceived by people i would like to not be perceived by myself i just want to go sit in my own space and just think about all the terrible things i've done (laughs) yeah or that i think i've done yeah i feel (laughs) like i've done terrible thing i mean maybe i um did a twirl and hit a wall that did happen Mm -hmm. once i thought i like hurt someone that was really scary (laughs) Yeah. Um, there's a statistic, I forget exactly where it is, it is um, that kids, by the age of 10, neurodivergent kids get 20,000 more critical messages from peers and mm. adults than their neurotypical kind of yeah. peers, Wow, which is scary. That is scary. That does affect the way your brain forms, so there's a reason why being around other people socially is so exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> It's, that's trauma. It's, it's, it's formed the trauma. way your brain literally perceives other people. Yeah. The trauma of growing up in a neurotypical based, neuronormative society as a neuro. That isn't open person. enough to try and understand you properly. Yeah. I think that's the caveat, right? Because living in yeah. a different environment is one thing. Living. And growing up in a scenario where you're constantly feeling like, you know, like, like being queer that I don't quite fit in and whatever Mm -hmm. it is that I'm not doing or am doing is not acceptable in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Yes. Feeling like that for like, I don't know, like as far, as long as I can remember in terms of social situations. uh, And that doesn't mean like it was always like that. And I think now as I've grown older, I've been able to, I mean, it was like, the reason it's changed for me now is because I started, you know, finding um, my groups, like finding people, like, particularly when I, when I went to this acting school, uh, when I started a couple years ago, and then finished, and then was able to keep a few friends from it, um, like people with similar interests and passions, but then I've also ended up meeting quite a few neurodistinct people um, in that, like in those acting circles, and and I feel like those are where, like, and it's not to say, and it's like I do have neurotypical friends that they do make an effort to accommodate and understand me, but... Oh, absolutely. One of my best friends is strangely neurotypical. Mm-hmm. Um, probably my closest friend in the world. Mm-hmm. And the fact, like, but she's never, ever made me feel, even before she knew I had a... Yeah. It's never. also... Her, she was like, I've gone and done some research. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's even, great. I mean, you know, she didn't even tell me that she did the research. She was like, "So I read that it does." I'm like, "Yes." How did you? She's mm-hmm. like, "Oh, I read it. This and this." I'm like, "Bless you." 
That's something I really appreciate because I feel like, I don't know. I don't know if enough people do that, like looking stuff up on their own without us like sending something to them. Um, no, because they've never had to do that. Never, yeah. Or to feel comfortable, you know, either mm-hmm. they don't feel comfortable and they blame it on some, I mean, I'm exaggerating or simplifying things, but you know, it doesn't, they don't feel like the burden of responsibility is on them. Yeah. Which is, yeah, I know. Um, Which is part of like, going into these social situations is difficult for us because we've been... Because it's always on us. No, we've been conditioned to think it's about us, right? By adults who are just frustrated, mm-hmm. understandably, by having, you know, 16 little girls over who are all six at a sleepover mm-hmm. on a sugar high. And they're like, why can't mm-hmm. this just one girl be calm now? Like, mm-hmm. I don't understand. You know, as I'm not a parent, but I can imagine... Mm-hmm. Being around that many little kids and being just like, I need to go to sleep. I need to get these girls to calm down. You know, they're not mm-hmm. trying to be mean to you. People are human, but enough of that happens over and over again because you're put in these situations where you feel like you don't have a way out, that you just can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like I feel. I mean, I think it's also because it's a process for, for like for neurotypicals to understand uh, or neurotypical presenting friends of mine to fully understand the nuances of what it's like to see the world as an autistic person. And I think it, it is over time. And it's like, because I'll still run into some, you know, just naturally because of the neurotype difference and just communication style difference, I'll still run into a few like miscommunications and misunderstandings that I'll have to kind of explain to them. And one thing that's kind of annoying is around meltdowns. Uh, Sometimes they don't seem to understand that we don't have like much control over our meltdowns. We can't just like control our meltdowns or choose to not have a meltdown. We can, we can try our best to do, to use certain coping strategies to get to a point where maybe we avoid a melt that we're able to avoid a meltdown before it happens. But I just too many times I'll be talking with neurotypical friends or even neurotypical family and they just won't, even the ones that are doing the work and are trying to learn. And I do appreciate that they, they, they don't always um, get it fully I think I don't know if you've had similar experiences around that um well I mean Alex used to have meltdowns all the time mm-hmm. as a kid yeah um my partner also has my meltdowns when he's tired mm-hmm. and uh one of the I get the thing is I get triggered by people and I, even if I know it's not their fault who will you know just like random bursts of like frustration or you can't get something done and you go like I my my entire body just goes into complete fight and freeze, fawn, flight, all of the things. <laughs> Bite. Yeah. yeah. Um and it's hard because on the one hand I understand what's happening. Uh on the other hand, I'm also sort of being like, well, this is for me not great. Um and when I bring it up, he tends to say, well, you know, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm like, absolutely, I do. However, my nervous system doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So it's all about if you're having those close relationships with people where you can talk about it and say, well, here's what, you know, because it's not just them adjusting to us. That specific example is also one where we need, like someone like you needs to adjust to them a little bit, which feels unfair. Um, but, you know, you don't want to create that thing in other people. So either it's, okay, can we have a code word for when I need to do this? Or maybe I can go into another room here are the things and it takes a lot more time and effort than most people would like yeah and and even then sometimes it will just whatever if it happens and here's a list of the things you're allowed to say Mm -hmm. or do yeah or like you can leave or if i leave Mm -hmm. you know there needs to be a talk about it before yeah i think that makes sense like um kind of planning ahead and if it doesn't work out this is the hard bit it's you have to not hate yourself afterwards yeah because it's like a lot of times i'll feel ashamed by neurotypicals for having the meltdown and it feels like throughout my life it's always been about making them comfortable and me feeling ashamed and me like trying to not have meltdowns which i'd imagine Um, causes more meltdowns yeah which (laughs) causes more meltdowns um and So, like, of course, like, I don't want to make them uncomfortable, but, like, it feels like they don't always understand, like, I'm uncomfortable, like, like, I'll have a meltdown, and then, like, someone will complain about how it made them stressed out, or it ruined their day, and I'm like, well, okay, how do you think I felt? when I was having the meltdown, how do you think my day, do you think I had a fabulous day after having the meltdown? Um, well, and that's an excellent example, sorry, um, to, mm-hmm. to like, so again, this is where, you know, there's some behaviors and things that are more, more or less innocuous. <laughs> like, they're not really frightening to anyone, the fact that people freak out about them, like stimming, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is, is, just leave the kid alone. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, you know, and I'm saying this, it's interesting to have a conversation with you because as someone who isn't autistic but is neurodivergent, I have had to have those conversations where, whether it's my brother or my partner, where I said, I can't, it's really freaking me out. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I learned from a young age is going, I, I know you're trying really hard. Um, it's not a you or me or black and white situation, which is very hard. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd imagine from what I've been told for autistic yes. people after a meltdown to even be able to put themselves in that frame yes. of mind, like it's not just me or you because yeah. I, that you, if you, do you feel that way after meltdowns? Like it's me against the world. Yeah. Or it's the world against me. Like, like well, yeah. that's what the feeling I got from those talks. Yeah. It's, um, it feels like it's just like people are very quick to like like they want me to like they're focusing too much on what happened instead of what really needs to happen is like checking in like with like what led to what happened and like why I felt that way and then we can get to what happened and then we can talk about it and then we can like 
figure out what could, you know, be learned from it or taken from it, perhaps. Um, but it's just, like, there's so much, like, people want to, like, just hammer, like... Well, I think telling you over and over is going to be helpful, and it's not. Yeah, it's not helpful. <laughs> I, I think people need to understand. That, that I yeah. can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... And, the, and this is obviously more a, a nuanced person-to-person situation. From what you're describing, if it's between a close you and a close friend, mm-hmm. right, or someone who does love mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. and is just confused, yeah. um, it is unfortunately also your responsibility to decide, you know, one, how much energy can I, having had the meltdown, can I allocate to figuring out what they're feeling? Mm-hmm. Although that's difficult, it can also help you calm down. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I, I told my brother and other people, and they yeah. hate it when I say it. And then I'm like, I know it sucks, but mm-hmm. it does help. And like, yeah, it helps, but I yeah. hate it. Yeah, it's like once we... There's like a, a period, and I've experienced this as well, um, that we might not, like right after the meltdown, that we need to a lot of times be left... Like you were saying too, like with your brother, from what I understand, that we need to be left alone for a little bit. Yeah, he just needs to sit yeah. and just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just kind of decompress. And so that's another thing. I, I feel like after an autistic person has a meltdown, so many people are so quick to, like, you know, make them talk about it right away or whatever. Oh, I, I definitely still make that mistake. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's fine. And I'm, I'm saying... You know. I'm, 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 I'm not saying it's like, oh, my God, you're, like... It makes them oh, the, no, no, no. I'm yeah. saying as someone who is mm-hmm. neurodivergent and is aware of all this, I am still capable of making that yeah. mistake. It's yeah, still... and I, pro- I, I, I could probably <laughs> make that mistake with other people too, but it's just like I feel this happening a lot. Just like as a neurotypical to neurodivergent miscommunication or misinterpretation really or mis- just not, not being... And not by their fault necessarily, but not being properly, just the consequence of not being properly informed on how to handle autistic meltdowns. And so they'll basically, it's just the worst thing that they can do, like to make, to force me to talk about it right away and then to like make me feel bad for it before even addressing why I was so anxious and upset and agitated and why I what led to the meltdown it's just I really I can't stress it enough and I even did a specific episode on this but um I need like people need to understand like it's like because there's this yeah my if you don't like I've had a conversation before with my partner where he did have a meltdown and he was talking about, you know, what caused it and stuff. Mm-hmm. And say you're in a relationship with someone, which is an extension of any social interaction, right? But just more intimate. Yeah. So the rules are slightly different if you're if you're artistic and listening to this. The rules change a little bit, um, which is hard. So if you raise, if, if a hypothetical person that I'm in a relationship raises their voice at me or snaps at me, I... I don't, there's a point at which I actually don't care whether or not you're autistic. That's never an okay thing to do. Yeah. Say they were then to say, oh, I'm tired. I didn't get enough sleep, whatever. And it happens over and over again. I'm like, yeah, Mm -hmm. at at this point, you know, it's, 
I can talk to you as much or to any friend as much as possible mm-hmm. about how to do that. But if you notice that this is happening to you over and over and over again as an autistic person, um, outside of whatever the other person's doing, it is also unfortunately your responsibility to figure that out, which is which sucks because there's already so many other burdens on you as a neurodivergent person. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, and I'm saying you're right, but that's the difference, right? Is I think neurotypical people jump straight to the, that's what you should be doing thing. Yeah. Rather than also acknowledging that, you know, maybe this is why they're having a difficult time and then talking about that. Yes. And I think, I think sometimes, just that acknowledgement yeah. before saying, I exactly. understand all of that. And it's still not okay with me. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just, you know? exactly. And we can still, we can still reach the conclusion that, you know, it it wasn't okay to, like, have this outburst at this person. Um, but I just need them, like, when that happens, it just helps me reach that stage sooner. If yeah. they first acknowledge, okay, I understand you were upset, I, you know, um... That this you and this way, this way, this way. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. how you feel. I'm sorry, I feel that way. It's terrible. Or mm-hmm. I, if I make the fact that I made you feel that way, yeah. instead of you, mm-hmm. that if makes you feel sense. someone makes you feel a certain way, that's how it is, even if it's unintentional. Yeah, unless it's used mm-hmm. as a sort of, uh, unless it's mm-hmm. someone trying to manipulate you, in which case it's a whole different conversation. Yeah. But anyways, that's not what we're talking about here. Um, yeah. you know. For them to say, yeah, and then you say, this is the boundary I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And what's hard as someone who's neurodivergent, and I imagine for you, is there are going to be points where there are some people who are lovely and really enjoy who you are, but because of their experiences with either outbursts from other people that had nothing to do with you, or, you know, just the way their nervous system is wired, doesn't matter how much they like you. It's to them not, not necessarily not worth it, but they, they just decide, I can't keep putting myself through this, and it's not a reaction on you yeah i imagine that's what's hard so that's like as a not just autistics but as any neurodivergent person you're going through this constant like even if you get along with the person even if you do this even if you're great friends there's there's going to be a point where they're just you know if some if they decide that they're not ready to either have conversations with you about this or they're just at a point in their lives where they're too tired to have conversations with you about this we have to respect that, and that's very difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We feel it misunderstood. Because you do, yeah, and then you feel you have like... every right to go, no, even if sometimes, most of the time, they might be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. But, and, and, you know, that's just, a, that's just how relationships work. And feeling misunderstood in all those weird social situations growing up where you didn't know what the rules were, it, you know, it's hard those things do inform the way we feel when we're misunderstood misunderstood or we feel we can't be ourselves in any social situation um so although it's not our fault as is with most trauma it is our responsibility to an extent (laughs) which is hard because it's like unfair (laughs) yeah it's unfair and it's hard to like unpack trauma it just we have a song very strong sense of moral justice our neuro, us neurodivergence yes. like it's very we're like no it's not but it is our responsibility yeah we we do agree to that but we also this feeling of like how dare we have to be forced to exist this way i know that's that's why i get so upset because it's um 
Yeah. It's just not letting it, you know, what we do with that in social situations, right? Yeah. Which is also annoying. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, so. Yeah. You had other questions. <laughs> yeah, I have more questions. Um. Uh, my next question is: What strategies were you able to create for yourself to get through school and work as an ADHDer? Exercise. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, even if you don't, if even if you're not on a diversion, most of the things that work for us, as I've said on previous episodes of this podcast, will work for you. We've gone through that disclaimer. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, exercise helps. Mm-hmm. Any form of exercise. My parents, and again, because it's genetic, oh, there's a lot of, I've heard interviews with a lot of um, like writers and artists and comedians who have recently found out they're neurodivergent. And they'll be like, well, now it makes sense because my entire family was always very keen on physical exercise. Mm-hmm. Even if they didn't understand, like, our, I think both sides of our family, our shared family, um, mm-hmm. very keen on exercise. Yeah. <laughs> I have Olympic athletes on both sides of my family. Mm-hmm right um it's it's just you have to have a walk every day you have to go skiing you have to have some form of exercise in your life in some way every day yeah which is not bad mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like quite excellent no it is it is good yeah and and should be taught to people generally um within the person's actual abilities but that that really helped having some form of physical activity for me it was ballet and then when I started, I was no longer professionally um, like performing as a kid because I used to. And I started just kind of doing more school in high school because I was doing mm-hmm. something called the International Baccalaureate, which is a lot of work if anyone's been through it. And I'm very sorry. Um, you know, we'd I would take lunchtime to go to the gym and just do some form of cardio. Yeah. But that's also time exhausting because then I have to, you know, we had maybe 45 minutes for lunch. I have to get lunch or I have to take a snack or have, you know, like man- like change my actual food meal routine to everyone else's so that then I could take that time to exercise mm-hmm. and still manage to feed myself throughout the day. Yeah. I have to sit at school for six mm-hmm. hours a day. This brings up a uh, question um, also something else that I was just thinking about myself recently in terms of time management and have you ever struggled with time management because I feel like there are certain times that it is and I don't know if I've struggled with this as much as other people but there there are certain times that for me um with certain situations that I'll feel like it is really hard for me to budget how much time a certain task is gonna take and then I used to yeah. be that way. Mm-hmm. My father's definitely that way. He's yeah. still that way. Um, just, <laughs> he'd be like, "How much is this?" Like, "Oh, you know." And then he'll he'll still be out. Like he'll go out on a walk with the dogs. My mom wants to start cooking, and he'll be he'll say it's thirty minutes. It's been two hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which you know, there's, there's some quirks you just have to live with. My mom mm-hmm. now has a tracker app on Dad's phone so that she knows mm. how far away from the house yeah. he is. But then he forgets to take his phone, and that's a whole mm. different issue. Right? Yeah. Um, so there's that kind of thing. And when I don't take meds as a kid, I remember I would, you know, I would get upset because my sense of time would be skewed when I didn't take meds. Um, mm. I would be at some like 
my favorite play dates were when we were like one-to-one friend play dates, not the yeah. huge sleepovers. So we'd be playing something, it'd be a lot of fun, and then I I, I have this m- distinct memory of mum coming in to the room where we were playing and saying, oh, you have like 30 minutes left. I'm like, great. And to me, it went by as though it was two minutes. And then she comes back, she goes, time to go. I was so upset. Like, that was only two minutes. She goes, nope, that was 30. Yeah. It'd be really, by. really upsetting. Because my I was having so much fun. Yeah. It just went... Yeah. <laughs> I felt, to this day, yeah. my brain, even though I understand mom was probably cognitively right, mm-hmm. <laughs> I still remember that time as two minutes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, meds help mm-hmm. because, one, my brain is less likely to do that. Um, and the other thing is that from a very young age, I think because my brother is autistic, we used to have to create a family schedule. Very rigid for him. Mm-hmm. You know, for what he would expect every day. Yeah. And so I sort of had to <laughs> figure that out as some as an ADHDer, you know, so that, I mean, th- there were some unpleasant experiences with that, but for, in the most, for the most part, it helped me. Yeah. Because from a young age, I had to practice thinking that way for Alex. Mm-hmm. I see. And then, even then, when he was having his therapy and I was there with him, we would practice budgeting you know, I have this many things to do in a day. Yeah. Um, I'm going to allocate time one for the actual budgeting of the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to give myself an hour to budget the thing for these tasks at most. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think a lot of ADHDers get stuck is they'll start organizing the thing and then they haven't even given themselves um, a time limit to the organizing. And then yeah. you... The organizing is so fun because you're not actually doing anything. I mean, you kind of are because you're helping feed yourself, but you're getting all the dopamine from being like, I'm going to get this done and this done and this done. And then you go for four hours doing this thing and you've actually done quite a bit of prep, but none of the actual tasks. True. I've had that happen. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's so frustrating because on the one hand, it's not a bad thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Right. On the other hand, if you've done that for four hours, you no longer can do anything. Yeah, it's true. No, because I'll, I'll plan, I'll plan all this stuff. Go, oh, I'm gonna do this and this and this and this and that and this and this and that. And then I'm like, this is gonna take thirty minutes. This is gonna take yeah. forty five minutes. This is gonna take whatever. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, we'll get to the 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 kind of restrictive side of that later because that's happened to me also. Um, because it's good as long as you're somewhat flexible within that. There's a mm-hmm. point where I was literally just because I was so afraid that I would be late or not get things done, or not be productive, that I wouldn't adjust my schedule for when I was sick. Mm. I would just power through it, and that eventually led to my body just telling me no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so it's it's using coping mechanisms like that, but also learning and, and letting yourself make mistakes, which is not fun, and I hate it. I hate it to this day. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, do not want. Uh, <laughs> but also trying to tell yourself that scheduling a break or if you your brain works that way that you need to keep doing things setting rest with for a certain amount of time as a task <laughs> yeah is still a task i think is probably the most important thing to anyone who is struggling with adhd or, or like scheduling and doing too much yeah is rest is a task you have to choose to do it because you might not feel like doing it, like most things, mm-hmm. you know, 
with ADHD. Your brain does not want to do the thing, even though you're interested in the thing, even though you want to technically do the thing, but you don't have the dopamine for the thing. There are times where you just have to go like, I don't want to do this, but I know I have to. And I will do mm-hmm. it for 30 minutes and then I will do something else. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Because um, my brain, most ADHD brains, they don't, completing a thing is not actually fun. Yeah. There's no reward at the end of it. There's nothing at the end that's like, here's your thing. You know, mm-hmm. anticipating it is anxiety. Doing the thing is actually, when you're in the flow of it, its own reward. Getting it done, telling people what a great job you've done, usually meaningless, at least in my experience. Yeah, I mean, it's... It it's absolutely nothing. I know it technically means well, but chemically, nothing happens to my brain. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have to find other ways to motivate myself. Sometimes if it's a task that I've been putting off for a long time and I finally do it, I will feel good about it for a little bit just because I finally did it. Yeah. Yeah, and most of the time that task only took 15 minutes. Yeah, exactly. It will happen a lot of times. There will be like a 10-minute task or a 15-minute task that I'll put off for like two months, and I'll finally do it. And I was like, oh, my God, I finally did that. And And then you're like, why did it take so long? And the cycle starts... (laughs) Um, so my next piece of advice is other people have also said this um, and perfectionism is something that is a coping mechanism for neurodivergency generally mm-hmm. if I do something perfectly no one can be upset at me mm-hmm. and it's not bad to be good at something however if it is worth doing it is also worth doing badly within reason yeah yeah if you have a, if you have a physical injury and you want to go running that's probably not a great idea right mm-hmm. that's probably not worth doing badly mm-hmm. but if you want to write something you want to start doing something starting the thing and i'm not saying anything that nobody already knows so <laughs> i will acknowledge to everyone listening to this you already know this and i know that you already know this and that is not helpful but this will be um having something to work with is better than nothing yeah, I agree. Even if it's shit. I agree. Because that's, that's, I, oh my God, because for me, absolutely. Because it's like, I'd rather start something and just be doing it. And like, here, I did something. Then keep thinking about, like, because I, I know there's certain people that they're, they are perfectionists. And so just naturally, like, they're going to be like, no, but it has to be but really it's not good. It's situation to do it. I can't do it yet. Yeah, it, it's like, and I'm like, well, I mean, for me, like, if I keep trying to make it good, if I keep thinking about, oh, but how is this going to be, you know, this certain way, then I, I tend to, personally, I tend to never get it done. If, I, if I'm thinking like that, like, um, unless I have a very, very clear idea of what I want and I'm able to just execute it, which, but it's like, with executive dysfunction, even if you know what you want to do, that's not ex- necessarily going to happen. Yeah, which exactly. There's the stress and mm-hmm. why a lot of us put off doing the thing. Yeah, and I think a there's, lot of yeah, there's not like enough studying, understanding. Right? Mm-hmm. People going, oh, you're just going to study. I would get so anxious because there was a time at school. Another ex- thing of burnout. Um, example of burnout. I didn't have to technically study anything but maths, really. That that I did really have to work at um, until I hit like high school. Yeah. Didn't really want to study. 
um, because I just took information in and they weren't asking me to regurgitate information. They were asking me to learn and do things with the information more than they were asking me to just prove that I knew it. And I remember the first time I sat down and I was like, I need to study something. And I was reading the same thing they were giving me over and over and over again. And I loved reading. And it felt like I had gotten nothing done. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, oh, I spent three hours studying. And I'm like, but does that help? And they're like, yeah, of course. Whereas to me, that's a complete waste of time. Yeah. And so the idea that I can start doing something, and that's what follows, I think everyone is neurodivergent mm-hmm. into any task they want to do is, well, if I, what if it's not worth the time? Um, what I've learned to say to myself is, well, then, you know, this is where the putting a time restriction on how long you try to do the thing is important. Yeah. Say, I will try to do it for 25 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour, whatever works for you personally. Mm -hmm. If you're in the flow of it, and even if you're in the flow of it, you just, you stop. You have to be strict with yourself, you stop. And then you take a 15 minute break, you come back and... If it didn't work, you go, okay, so what didn't work? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Because yeah. mm-hmm. even if you technically don't have something that you wanted to have created or some product that you, it was what you intended to make or write or read or whatever. Yeah. Do you now have, have an experience, which is not nothing, for you to think about and go, okay, why did this not work but something that's similar that i did before did work yeah which is a lot of thinking but it's better than sitting there in a ball thinking i'm never gonna get this done i can't focus Mm -hmm. i can't do this all the other times i've done this which is because it's technically not true you've managed to do enough to get you to the point where Mm -hmm. now you have to do this yeah it's just finding or writing down little thing stop gaps for you to get go back to whenever you feel that way yeah that makes sense. A lot of writers do this. It's what I have to do mm-hmm. as a writer. Because it's like, you know, writing is, you don't choose to do it, really. Not even, <laughs> you don't choose to be a writer. No one wants to be mm-hmm. sitting there going, I hate my brain so much, but also it's the only way I seem to be able to communicate with people. <laughs> like, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's not always fun. Most of the time, it's not fun. So you have to, when it's not fun, you have to go, well, I'm going to write, do something I need to do, like write out an outline. I've done the outline. I will now pick one subject from that outline and I will write about it for 20 minutes. Great. I will now have tea. I will go back. Mm-hmm. I'll write another thing from the outline. Go have tea. Come back. Strike uh, out anything that I don't think mm-hmm. is good. But it's about finding practical tasks to that huge one in your head where you're yeah. like, I can't do this. That makes a lot of sense. I find that helpful as well. And that's yeah. the same thing with scheduling, right? And timing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is you have to when you feel overwhelmed, you have to start going. Well, what are the first couple things I can do within this period of time? Yeah. Which even neurotypicals are very bad at doing, by the way. Mm-hmm. They can, yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. So you know, but they because most of the time their brain will allow them to just sort of do the thing. Mm-hmm. So this is yeah. one case in which, yeah, if you learn to do that as as an ADHD, it is not technically a superpower, but it will make you a really great organized person. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Most people look at me and they're like, do you have ADHD? You're so organized. I'm like, yeah. it's because I can't afford not to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. What about you? So you sort of just sort of float in and out of time for you? Is that what it's like? Yeah, I'll just, um, I mean, I'll think like I have an hour to do, like, I'll, I'll think I have an hour to do a certain task or to write something um, about some a specific topic I want to talk about. And it'll just, it'll kind of snow, I'll like, as I'm writing, I'll like think of more things I want to write or just like I'll change how I'm writing it and I'll lose, it feels like I lose track of time. Um, a lot of times where I'm like, oh, you know, I thought this was, I was planning for this to take an hour and I'm only halfway done and it's already like 50 minutes or something. Um, so what do you think to yourself when that happens? Like, are you upset at yourself? Are you nervous? Are you, I feel I'm just kind of like, mm, a little bit, I guess it's a little bit of just naturally off the bat is like frustration, like, oh, you know, I wish I had, um, I had thought of that, but then at the same time, it's like, I can always, you know, kind of similar to what you were saying, I, I could put it away. I could like write what I wrote and, and maybe some, just some notes, like, so I remember what I'm going to talk about next and just leave that there and then come back to it and then um and then that's that's helpful but like I find like if I am trying to do something and I think it's it's also been something that I've learned with time because I think like when I first started writing stuff for my blog like even before I had the podcast like about a year ago or something um I would try to write out all these articles. I think like my first couple articles, I don't know. I just, I thought in my head like, oh, I should write this all at once. Um, and then it was really? not just very few people do. I'm saying this is someone who writes for mm -hmm. a living. I, it's, it's not, I, there's very few people who can do that. Yeah, it's not usually, yeah, it's just because, and because stuff comes up, and then I'm like, oh, but I want to add this, I want to add that, and it's just like, it. I, I found that it does make sense, and then eventually I figured it out, I was like, okay, it makes more sense for me to do it in pieces, like, I'll write this, and then I, I know, like, all the subtopics I want to talk about, and I can always add. I just don't know where they are. Yeah, and then I'll figure it out, like, as I'm doing it, um... At least for me, um, it's it seems to have worked more that way, yeah. And that approach, like the the um, specific approach to writing, for example, mm -hmm. that we can extrapolate to other social situations, because mm -hmm. I think it is useful. Is someone give like when I I've written several dissertations. I did undergrad and masters, um, and whenever I'm writing essays for myself, I kind of like immerse myself in whatever I'm going to be writing about. Right. And as soon as yeah. I have something, I can feel myself trying to explain something that I'm annoyed about or I'm interested or passionate to someone else. I start mm -hmm. writing. It. Yeah. And then I give myself a time limit and I, I, and I don't look at whether it's focused. I don't look at whether it's, you know, I mean, it has to form sentences, but you know, and I have to be mm -hmm. able to follow it. Not anyone else. No one else does. Um, but I have, you know, I just get it all out. 
Yeah. And I'll usually give myself a day or two. Because if I look at it immediately, I'll be like, what is this? How on earth am I going to untangle this for anyone who is not me? <laughs> mm, yeah. And then I kind of have to do the opposite of, you know, taking a bit of that sort of structure that my brain doesn't like, but also loves for some weird reason, where I have to go, okay, so what are the points? What are the questions that I'm asking here? And I write them out. Mm -hmm. Did I ask them in what I've written? And if I don't, then I ask them. So then I structure them based on the questions. Like, have I answered them? Have I given this amount of evidence? Have I done this? Have I? And then you can start splitting it up into things. And once you've yeah. done that, it's a, bit, it's a bit technical. You've done all the technical stuff and you read it again. And then you just got to have fun with it. You can be like, oh, this, this lovely sentence can go over here. Everything starts to flow. Yeah. And you have to get any task or any social mm-hmm. interaction either. Mm-hmm. You sort of have to do the assessing and then you have to be like, I will try this out. And if it doesn't work, I'll see what does work. Yeah. If that person doesn't understand, or I feel like I need to tell them explicitly that, that this is what's going on, then you go on from there. You know, it's a very choose-your-own game, video game thing. You know, like, mm-hmm. are they going to be upset at you? Are they going to accept you? Great. You can move on from those two things. Yeah, true. Yeah, you, have to, you have to sort of condition yourself, to, and it's really hard because it's what we everyone is asking us to do, and what we are trying to do is anticipate everything. Yeah. Particularly for me, yeah, for sure. Which is what's so exhausting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So we sort of have to be, we have to go into situations, you know, especially when they're relaxed social situations. If people, you know, going, I am me, I will try my best to be, you know, the most authentic, but like for the context, appropriate version of me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you know, I'm not going to go to a work drink thing and do cartwheels. Whereas if I go to a party with other dancers, it's, mm-hmm. we're all doing splits. We're all whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't, it, you know, it's context yeah, specific. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's just about learning to sort of manage your own, but lack of meltdown or um, rejection sensitivity mm-hmm. dysphoria. Because sometimes people are not going to do it for you. Yeah. And being like, if it went well, then great, what went well? Mm-hmm. If it didn't, you go, is it something that I actually did that did make it weird? Or are are these just situations I don't want to have to be in unless it's absolutely necessary? Yeah. Which can piss people off. They go, why do you, mm-hmm. you want to go to this book club? Or why don't you want to go to this thing? I'm like, mm-hmm. Because I will upset people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's it's hard to get them to understand those boundaries sometimes and like you can choose not to i'm like yes but the effort of Mm -hmm. doing things that aren't actually really upsetting but other people might interpret as upsetting like having trouble with lots of people on one zoom call like we talked Mm -hmm. about previously right it just makes it very difficult to not interrupt and i've already done it so many times on this episode Mm -hmm. and other episodes of this podcast (laughs) one person (laughs) it's um (laughs) I mean, I find myself interrupting people sometimes, and it, or you know, compare if if not that, what happens to me a lot of times? What usually happens to me in these like situations where it's a Zoom call with multiple people is I'll be quiet most of the time, not necessarily because I don't have anything to say, because sometimes I do have things to say, but. I just never know when to say them. Like, when is my opening? And that maybe not even on Zoom, but like, 
in large gatherings in general. Like, this is something that will happen to me constantly, is I'll end up quiet because I just don't know. It's like I can't find an opening for, like, what I want to say. And then is what I want to say going to make sense when that opening comes? And then it's like, there's just, and it is a lot about the pre-planning, too, like, that goes on in my head. I've been told off by my partner many times in social situations. I do the exact opposite, which is not always great. But <laughs> on the one hand, very comfortable about sharing certain um, honest opinions about things in a kind way. And I, in my head, they are connected. And I think they usually are connected. Um, yeah. But my partner is very much like you. He likes to plan out conversations. He has an idea of when things should be said, when they shouldn't be said. And so when... He's like, well, you talk more than most and almost anyone else in the room. I'm like, nice change for the one one girl mm-hmm. in the room to be talking the most. Um, but he said, you know, some of it didn't even seem relevant. I'm like, well, to me, it was relevant. No, to you, it's relevant. But it doesn't mean I can't take anything from what he's saying. And like, sometimes I, you know, I just need to sit mm-hmm. back and think a little bit more, or think quietly a little <laughs> bit more than I am doing. I think it is more socially acceptable to be for do things the way you do, which is where in that situation, just step back because you're not stepping on anybody's toes. Yeah, it's hard sometimes, though, because. I'm not saying it's right. I'm yeah. saying it's, it's, it's more socially acceptable. Which is just. Whole... But do you end up coming home and like sit replaying everything you wanted oh my to say? Goodness. And stuff? Yeah. yeah, and everything I did say, and everything they said, and like every little interaction I had, I'll find myself replaying. Um, even if it was like I perceived it as a good interaction, um, <laughs> I'll just be like studying it and analyzing it. Yeah, I do less of that. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, than you probably do but I've also taught myself to do it less Mm -hmm. in part it's I think because there's a part of me that understands that women are taught whether they're neurodivergent or not to do that all the time and there's Mm -hmm. a small bit of me that's like I refuse not saying I won't reflect on what I do Mm -hmm. but there's a bit of me I'm well I'll put it this way I'm trying to figure out where me being a feminist and me being an occasionally obnoxious ADHD or meet and how to balance the two because there's Mm -hmm. On the one hand, there's the um, urge to go, hey, buddy, which I don't do. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I should be able to speak when I want, how I want, whatever yeah. I want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. However, you know, that's rude. To, to other people, bit, though, to yeah. their opinions, and, which might be biased. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and sometimes it's just not worth it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just an added... Um, it's an added weight to any large social situation when you feel like morally or someone might even be making like a slightly weird joke. Like someone might make a weight joke that's not necessarily mean, but it's unnecessary because it's not funny. I don't understand why weight is funny anymore. Um, For any, whether too skinny, too fat, like it's just not a particularly smart thing to mention anymore. Um, Same way, small tangent when, you know, I used to really like Dave Chappelle, the comedian, in his mm-hmm. old, you know, earlier work. Mm-hmm. And then as he got older and more of his specials came out, you can kind of see him grasping at things to be, stay relevant. Mm-hmm. 
And when he's talked about journalists who have written about him, he's like, he's punching below the belt or whatever it is. I'm like, I think a better way to phrase that is that it's beneath him. He's too smart to make jokes like this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what's hard to watch is these people are doing it just to get a laugh. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, these are, you know, I, I don't know Dave Chappelle personally, but you know, it's situations like where, you know, he makes a trans joke to get a laugh out of someone when he's obviously smart enough to do something more interesting with that. It's yeah. a shame. It's a shame. Yeah. It's, it's also rude and dangerous and obnoxious, yeah. but it's also just a shame. You know, he's a smarter man than that. And I have friends who do certain things and make jokes like that. And I'll, you know, I'll say, wait, that, that wasn't really funny though. It's got a laugh. I'm like, yeah, but like, you're smarter than that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's... You know, so there, that's important to say in a conversation. <laughs> yeah, it is important to say, for sure. However, there are times where people who know I have ADHD will tell me, well, that was just your ADHD talking. You're overreacting. Like, I'm not going to unpack how this is also a feminist issue now, because this is too much. Like, yeah. But it's it's going into that, you know, as neurodivergent people in social situations, we're also more aware of kind of the underlying social issues that are happening around us. We're yeah. more likely to call out people. Yeah. Another reason people don't like us as much. Yeah, it's true. It's true. We'll call you out if you like it or not. I you have know. a recent example or a favorite example, or is that too off the cuff to ask? Oh, um... <laughs> okay to say yes. I mean, I shouldn't, because, like, I don't want to get in trouble with people. Um, I don't know. Maybe I could. You could say hypothetical person said this. Yeah, I could. Um, is, that, is that, are you comfortable with that, or do you think that... Let's see, uh... If you're not, we can stop doing that. <laughs> no, I'm just trying to think of, like, a way that I could, um, that I could talk about it, uh... I mean, it's like, I feel like even, um, even when it's not about myself, but it's like, if it's with someone else, like a close friend or family member and someone, um, makes a comment, like, is, is not being nice to them, or is, like, harassing them, or making a comment, or, like, I'll want to call it out, um, and, and, like, the, per and then it's, like, but even if it's not considered, like, socially appropriate or whatever for me to talk about it with other people, or for me to, um, for me to bring it up or whatnot, um, but, like, I'll want to call it out because of my strong sense of justice. Um, and, you know, like... By the way, as a man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of issues with that going on, you know. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I feel like it's important to call these things out. But even if they do, like, you know... Um, if it means that I have to infringe these so-called um, social norms or whatever expectations. And then it's also like the way people take things like when you call them out 
for stuff is really frustrating. Like, they'll automatically just get offended or shut you down. And so I've, like, had experiences. Have you ever had someone shut you down and say, oh, you don't understand because you're autistic? Has that ever happened to you? Um, I don't think with those exact words, but it has happened before where it felt like they were basically implying that. Yeah, and it's just, oh my god, because it's just, there's so much misinformation. I mean, I think because it's not taught enough, and my therapist has even told me many times, this isn't taught enough in psychology school, and like that she didn't, um, I think she said she didn't uh, really learn what she knows about neurodiversity until after her post-grad studies, and she said that... um, in the and I mean I've I've heard like listening to other podcasts and stuff like about people that they go to try to get an autism diagnosis because they're finally like identifying themselves and and like figuring thinking like oh maybe I am autistic and the profession oh you can feed yourself and you have friends they're yeah fun. exactly they'll say <laughs> oh you walked up the stairs or you're in a relationship you you know like at what cost <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's so damaging. Like, their idea is that to be, is that if you're autistic, you can't, like, the expectations are so low. Like, it's just such blatant ableism. Like, they're like, okay, so you can't be in a relationship, so you can't. Like, yeah, I I can't. It it takes... I'm frustrating. I'm saying this to someone who has a brother who's autistic. (laughs) Yeah. Partner's autistic. And I love them both very much, and they do wonderful things, as is... With any relationship, mm-hmm. it's like any relationship is going to be frustrating for its own reasons. <laughs> Nothing, yeah. very little to do with whether or not it's autistic or not. It has, if anything, it has more to do with their sense of both of them, how much they have, are forced to reconcile the things they think they're terrible at. Yeah. Because that's what they've been told they're bad at. Mm-hmm. And bring that into relationships. You're like, actually, mm-hmm. you're fine. <laughs> yeah. It's not this bit you're having trouble with. It's the fact that everyone else thinks that you're not capable. Yeah, of and then they're not... And they won't properly, like... Because they're not... They're basically expecting you to fit these molds... These, like, traditional molds... Yeah. That were just... Like, for me, I'm just never going to fit these traditional molds that they want me to fit. I'm, I can excel, but I, I excel in my own way. I excel... You know, in the spiky skill sets. You're very, very Mm -hmm. good one thing and not so much something else. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm technically, I I don't like the word genius. I'm I'm very, very, very good Mm -hmm. and I've been tested at being very good at certain things. And then on the other hand, I am terrible at spatial and I have thinking and I have dyscalculia. To the point where I am way beneath my peers, mm. you know, which mm. can which can confuse people. Also, socially, they'll say, "Oh, you know," they'll start talking to you about something because they think because you understand all of this. Mm-hmm. They'll start talking about something like maths, at least from my perspective. And I'll be like, "Well, I understand the theory of it. I can't really talk." Oh, but you're smart. You get things. I'm like, not that. Not <laughs> that. Yeah, it doesn't mean like everything. Like for me too. Like. I know certain things really well, but it doesn't mean, like, I know, like... Which is normal for yeah. everyone, right? Mm-hmm. But I, the difference is, for example, I'll give you a specific example. 
my partner has a very great sense of direction. Mm-hmm. I do not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I absolutely do not. I have to walk a place and then I'll remember how to get somewhere. It's the muscle memory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, and every couple of months he finds something out about me and my spatial issues that he just is like, but you like the fact that I can't tell you in this room, in my flat, which way is North. Cannot do it. I can, I understand where I am on the map. If it's facing me like this mm-hmm. of London. Yeah. I understand I'm in this area of it. I have absolutely no idea, even though I know that there is a, you know, the the subway or the underground or the metro or whatever you call mm-hmm. it is that way. And that station's yeah. over here. I literally have to draw it out in order to figure out where it is. Which he does not understand at all. Mm. It is mind-boggling to him. Mm. <laughs> Whereas if you give me a list of words and ask me to put them in as many different categories and combinations as possible by theme, I will create so many themes that I will never stop. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is what the test was when they gave it to me. They didn't realize they needed to give me a time limit. <laughs> mm-hmm. She's just never going to stop it. She's yeah. random with words. Um, but in, in social situations, that happens also where people will be like, oh, you're so good at this, right? Yeah. Like, you're doing you're doing really well at this conversation in this spe- with this specific group of friends. Why can't you do that in this situation? And there's a lot of shame and later on, like, helpful coping me- mechanisms, unhelpful coping mechanisms that people who are neurodivergent use in order mm-hmm. to get through all of that. One of them is drinking. I've been, I'm, I'm guilty of doing this mm-hmm. a lot. Just because it takes less. I mean, I don't do as much as I used to. Now I just drink because I like it. But it's more, I remember having a drink and going, is this what everyone else feels like? Like, it's not, I don't feel free. I mm-hmm. don't feel anything. I'm just like, I'm not overthinking everything. Exactly. I feel the same way when I drink. Yeah. And it, you know, through therapy and, you know, when I started doing, when I realized it might become a problem, and it occasionally still is, but I've, mm-hmm. I've gotten better at noticing it mm-hmm. um, and adjusting to it, is that it's not, if you're in a really stressful situation, it's kind of what alcohol is for. It's not necessarily a crutch. Um, if there's too many sounds going on, alcohol does help. <laughs> yeah, it helps. And it, I think it's just like, it helps take the edge off a I little think bit. I that's technically a bad thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, for um, me, like in social saying. situations, like if I'm, you know, and I did like it, this happened, uh, you know, like at the family reunion, not because I was, it's like, I'm happy to be there. I'm happy to be with everyone. And like, I'm not drinking my sorrows in any way. But I'm like, if I have a glass or two of wine at dinner, it actually helps me open up more. And I can actually enjoy people more and I can feel more connected. um, Because I'm not so like, shy and like like you said it was very interesting like you help you you mentioned uh with the sounds it makes the sounds less overwhelming because i feel like it does do that for me too and i think i hadn't really thought about that aspect before in terms of the sensory overload like i think it does when i drink 
it does reduce the sensory overload, overwhelm. It doesn't get rid of it, but it does reduce it, yeah. It reduces it. I'm kind of just not thinking so much. It, it kind of, like, taps out the background noise. Um, and I'm... Which, yeah, it's still, like, you know, drinking, like... You have like, to be very careful about that, you know? I yeah. mean, it's used... This is the thing, mm-hmm. right? It's not that you need it. Is that It's actually nothing terribly... It's not... Like, it can be helpful in certain situations. Yeah. Uh, and it's also like I still need to dose it. Like I usually, if I go over two glasses of wine, there's things, there's like more things that I have to start worrying about. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think one to two glasses of wine usually um, it, during a situation like this, a social situation, um, it does help. I have found it to be helpful a lot of times in terms of just kind of taking off that overthinking, the layer of like sensory sensitivity and overthinking and, and whatnot and kind of just being a little more loose. So I remember because one of the things about, um, well, especially in our family, being a woman and being taught how to how to act properly in, at cocktail parties mm. and things, um, you know, so it was perfect until I wasn't. Um, you know, the, I could mask while still drinking a lot, which was an issue. And, you know, I can sort of, and I remember going through that and I was like, I can't let this keep happening because I can drink more than most people, which is not necessarily good Mm -hmm. because I'm so used to being like aware of everything, but also still making mistakes occasionally that other people don't notice. Yeah. They really know me. And so I, I found what was helpful was I'm going, so I'm, I need to start noticing or like writing down what is it exactly that I'm feeling when I've had that first or second glass of wine. Yeah. Like what, and then I compare it to notes. I'm like, so how can I transfer this feeling mm-hmm. to my everyday life without the drinking? Yeah. So that's, it's, it's more in terms of unmasking, it can be helpful in that way. If you take it as a, okay, so this is kind of what my brain would be like if it weren't constantly anxious about shit because of social trauma. Yeah. Or yeah. it's a little bit less, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Doesn't mean you keep drinking the thing. <laughs> yeah. It does, however, mm-hmm. mean that you can notice, okay, so what is it that I'm not thinking about? Yeah. When I've had that drink. And I think things like that are much more interesting than, you know, or, and it's still helpful to have a glass of wine, maybe more than, you know, at certain social situations, because it's just too much. I found I'm less burnt out the next day if I don't have too much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is weird. Most people are the opposite. Whereas everyone's hangovers, I'm like, I feel great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't. I haven't, like, I didn't notice the clanging of bottles the entire night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't have a headache. This is amazing. Yeah. This is amazing. Yeah. And that's the other thing about that coping mechanism. That is one that neurodivergents do need to be careful about, and I hate saying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. I just want to be careful about, because no, it, it helps so much. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. Meds make it less likely that it will help mm-hmm. so much, because you don't need it as much. But it's mm-hmm. just... It, it, it's it's things like that in social situations where like too much of a good thing actually makes it difficult and again it's not our fault because our reaction to the way we are in social situations is because things are overstimulating 
and depressants yeah. help. Mm-hmm. Um, True. Yeah. But yeah. It's it is something that uh, unfortunately can affect neurodivergent people. More. I think it should be talked about more openly yeah. in the neurodivergent community, mm-hmm. just because it's so stigmatized. They, just any form of intoxication, drugs, alcohol, outside of prescriptions. Yeah. Um, a lot of people do need them if they're not medicated. Mm-hmm. Which they are because they're stuck in social situations that they don't have the tools to get themselves out of. Yeah, um, I think it's probably an episode for a different, you know, a different mm-hmm. episode for this podcast because it's something mm-hmm. you know we're quite careful. I think as American people to stay away from any any sign that we're doing too much of a drug or yeah. alcohol because I'm afraid that uh-huh. then people will think that we can't take Adderall, we can't take Merlin, mm-hmm. we can't. Take we can't take medications that we actually need yeah i did actually do an episode uh maybe a month ago or something uh with my friend faina about substance abuse i think it's episode 67 um yeah i I, I, uh, checked (laughs) that out yeah it's um we talked a little bit about that and uh yeah it's kind of resonating like this conversation now it's uh, reminding me of that episode. Um, so, the most uh, helpful coping mechanism for you. The most helpful coping mechanism for me. Um, if you're stuck in um, situation is you're walking into a room. You have no idea who the people. You know, you know, like maybe two people in there. You don't know whether it's a calm party, people are reading and drinking, or whether they're discoing whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you tell yourself? I think. Um, What's been help? I mean, it's also been like something I've learned over time because I used like I feel like if this were me 10 years ago or something, I would just be lost. I would just be uncomfortable because I don't know like what to do, Um, particularly if I don't know the people that are there or if I'm not very familiar with them. But now... I've gotten to a point where what I would do in a party kind of situation, the first thing I want to do is find the people that I'm most comfortable with and kind of I'll tend to, and I think I used to already kind of do this subconsciously when I was younger, but now I'm aware that I'm doing it. Um, I will, I will find the, my people. I will find the, the people that I'm most comfortable with and I'll try to be sitting next to them if it's like a dinner thing um, or I'll just be like around them or next to them or I'll try to kind of like just be right with them because then it it makes me more comfortable off the bat because I'm comfortable with this person and I can talk to them and I can like start feeling like um, that actually kind of recharges my battery a little bit. Um, but it's also a good shield from people that I might not be comfortable with, or I'm just, I don't want to have like an awkward small talk conversation with this random person that seems to be coming this way. Um, so then I'll just engage. And this is something my therapist like kind of made me realize too. Like I can just engage with my friend, um, or whoever I'm with. And then that's kind of a shield to that as well. Um, I inadvertently, um, just because I kind of, there were some that I knew when I was younger in Moscow. 
I became friends with bartenders. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, there's some that I am very, very good friends with till this day, and they know everybody. I didn't, yeah. I didn't go out into, you know, into these interactions thinking I'm going to make friends with the bartender, and then I'm going to know everybody and everything's going to be fine. It's usually mo- because the bartender is the most interesting person in that room. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I found when I was, because I like to go to bars on my own, you know, you sit there with the book or you bring them food because it's the nicest way to express your love without being creepy. Um, you know, mm-hmm. bring people food. Yeah. Um, they, you know, and you, some, some bartenders, you don't, you know, there's obviously people that are not up to talking on or whatever, but there's always, always one or two that are just having this annoying shift and they wouldn't mind being spoken to. And it's really easy. Then other people get into the conversation and then all of a sudden you're in this, you know, if something happens, they're actually trained to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I tell my brother, he's like, actually that solidly works because they're mm. so used to seeing weird social situations and fights and drunk people and whatever. They're really unfazed by most shit. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that would be, even if you only know them for a night, it's a good idea that if the bar, <laughs> bar person looks friendly mm-hmm. or decent, you know, you're not using them, but it's, it's, that's mm-hmm. what they're there for. That's what a very good bartender is. They're that person to make sure that your experience is safe for you. That's what the mm-hmm. industry is about. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good point. It's interesting. Yeah. I never like. So the moral of the story is make friends and tip your bartender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Um, I have, uh, I, I know, uh, this is more related to like what we were talking about earlier, but, uh, what is the most unhelpful advice you'd say you've gotten from neurotypicals throughout your life? About socializing specifically? Mm -hmm. Or anything Uh, even. Um, just don't be too much. (laughs) What even is too much? Like, um, don't be too much. Yeah. Um, uh, specifically to maths, we had a teacher in high school who said, if you don't finish the homework in 25 minutes, stop doing the homework. And I took him mm-hmm. at his word. He went, you didn't do any of the homework. I'm like, because it took me 25 minutes to figure out what you wanted me to do with the homework. And then yeah. you followed your directions as said, mm-hmm. and I didn't do the homework. Mm-hmm. And so I got a zero. And I'm like, okay, so I just can't take that direction yeah. anymore. Oh, my God. Yeah, that, uh, you did it once. Why can't you do it again? Um, yeah, just listen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am listening. I'm just apparently it's there's um I think it's like Brave Dave or something or Brave. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll send the link and we can put in the show notes because I'm butchering yeah. whatever his thing is, <laughs> his handle is, and he has lovely little skits. He's, I think he's a he's a uh, he's a neurodivergent and he has like I'm assuming neurodivergent kids now because he does yeah. things about stuff and he had one about what happens when you're talking to an ADHD person and what they mean by listening. 
and it's great. And he's like, you know, this person's talking and he's, you know, his brain starts talking to him as well. And he's like, did they just say books? And he's like, well, I was actually trying to listen to, but we love books. Mm-hmm. What about, and then he started like trying to listen. He might be talking about books right now, but mm-hmm. we want to talk about our books. Mm-hmm. Like it's this entire thing that's happening in your head and you are trying to. Focus. Yeah, exactly. And then you end up, you know, it's, if that person talks for long enough, you will be in a different conversation with both them and yourself in your head. And then they'll ask you a question like, so what do you think? And you'll be like, do you think these two characters from separate film genres or big book genres would be friends if they met? And they'll be like, what? (laughs) Yeah. It is tangentially kind of what you were talking about, right? Like, no. Yeah, it's... um... So the advice that I would give people instead of that advice is... um, Try to be as honest and open as possible as long as you sa- feel safe enough to do so. Not everyone needs to know. Um, if you don't feel safe enough to do so, you actually don't need to engage that much. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. probably not interested. Mm-hmm. Um, something I was someone t- told me earlier, you don't have to try so hard. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. that's because it's 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 not you and mm-hmm. it's hard to turn off, but if that person isn't worth it, if there were, they'll let you know, and you'll want to try. You won't feel anxious about trying to over-explain yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. They'll want to know. Mm-hmm. True. That's right. Yeah. Instead of feeling, instead of that terrible feeling, and I think, like overarching in all social situations, is, um, you know, universal for anyone who's neurodivergent. That feeling that pit in the stomach's heart being swallowed by your liver feeling of having said something and and all of a sudden hearing yourself over explain and overshare everything because you feel you have to yeah and at the same time you 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 do know that this person does not care so it's, it's learning to don't get upset at yourself when that does happen but learn to notice it and the more you learn to notice it, the more you sort of have to, you know, you can start to go catch yourself doing it. Because mm-hmm. it's, if you feel like having to do that in a social situation, it is almost never good. That person does not want to listen to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They are not worth that time. Yeah. If they're upset mm-hmm. at you because they misunderstood you and they didn't ask you any questions or they didn't take your sorry, mm-hmm. you know, that you said, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Mm-hmm. Not worth it. Yeah, not worth it. That's right, it's not worth it. Um, I just have a couple more questions for you. Uh, I'll try to be quick. <laughs> no, it's just uh, I know that, that we've been at it an hour and a half. So uh, I, um, yeah, I'm, I don't want to like, keep you too long. Um, what have you been mislabeled at the most as an adhd throughout your life? Thoughtless. I'm the mm-hmm. opposite. Um, um, uncaring. It's always caring, caring, and then there's one situation where I feel like I fail, and they'll go, "Oh, you're uncaring now." I'm like, mm-hmm. no, I just um, listless, like, as though I don't have a plan for my future. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what's your plan? Like, I, I do kind of have a plan. I j- just it's in there 
and it is quite disheartening to hear people say, well, it doesn't feel like a plan. I'm like, it well, is. Well, plans are like, that, that was something that would drive me crazy too, like, since a young age, like, when people would ask me, like, what my plan is for, like, so many years from now, I'm like, how do we know what anything is going to look like? You know, it's also, like, now. the sort of the, you, it's the weird dichotomy of one mm-hmm. being an overthinker and overanxious and trying to predict everything, and then on the other hand, being so anxious and so frustrated all the time that you actually don't have the mental capacity to think to the future. Yeah, I don't have the mental capacity both. to, like, think of, like, I mean, I know, like, where I, you know, I have some basic ideas of, like, what I'd like to be doing and, like, where where I'd like my, uh, you know, what, what, what projects I want to invest in and stuff. But, like, I can't say... I mean, I, I didn't really know this as a kid. Like, I know this now, but I still can't say, oh, this is exactly what I'm going to be doing in April of 2026 or whatever. Like, I... I don't know. Like I'm gonna go. I'm. I have these goals. I have these projects, and I'm. I'm gonna go see where they take me, and what happens. And producing when you don't know exactly what it is or how to get there. That's mm-hmm. always really hard. Yeah. Which is when you have to ask for mm-hmm. help, which is really hard also. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, it's it's that. Uh, being selfish. Mm-hmm. I think is the one that hurts the most. Yeah. Or um, intentionally deceiving people. Mm-mm. <laughs> no, just so much misunderstanding, so much misunderstanding, and I think internalized ableism. Just not not the kind of, and it that's what I think a lot of people don't understand about internalized ableism is that it's not that you're being intentionally ableist like i'll have um i'll have a hard time or this can go with classism or racism or sexism as well um like i was trying to explain to a friend about how you know there was this um situation where my dad and his wife uh so my dad and his wife they just had a child recently so i have a half sister that's like three or four Actually, she's four. Yeah. And anyways, it's like, it's not a traditional, it's like not a traditional couple. You know, my dad is like older. And a lot of times my dad will get called the the grandpa. And my, but more disturbing than that, Gloriana, um, you know, will get called the nanny. Even though she's like her mom, and it's like she's 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 of Latin descent. She's of Latin descent, which to me is like it's rude. It's 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 it's, you know internally uh, xenophobic, and uh, I don't know. It's classist, and someone thought I was um like this is very quick. Uh, My partner works on the DLR, which is the Mm -hmm. overground. It's very cool. Transport is fun. I get a little card. It's called an Oyster Card in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone has one, but mine allows me to travel for free within London because I'm married to him. Lovely. With that, we have a little ID card that shows that we're allowed to have it. 
I took the wrong ID with me by accident. I took like my my U my like visa instead of the thing. Only first time I've ever done it. I was on the bus two stops away from where I live, and these re- in, like inspection revenue people come to check your tickets. And I pull out my ticket, and he goes, "Can I see your ID to go with this?" And I bring, I'm like, "Oh, I have the wrong mm-hmm. ID, but um, here's my visa one." Mm-hmm. So he can check my name against the number on the card when he calls, etc. Mm-hmm. He does that he calls and then he looks at the name and then <laughs> he's like so spell it out for me he looks at it and it's a slavic name Ksenia Rakovchik mm. with an x mm-hmm. is not an, is not an english name mm. and I, I don't look english either and on the back it's his place of birth moscow yeah and he i could hear on the phone he's like yeah it's hers um you know whatever so even though it was a mistake technically i should have had the other form of id there is no reason for him to then say, by the way, I'm going to take your Oyster card with me. Yeah. I'm going to file a thing. But I only know this because he looked at it when he looked at Moscow, mm-hmm. Russia, and he looked back at my name, he went, like he, so what he mm-hmm. thought, I'm, it seems like what he mm-hmm. thought, I can't mind. Um, I basically was a mail order bride or I was taking advantage mm-hmm. of someone in the transport business, right? So he, the, the, the disdain on his face and everything was absolutely horrible. So now mm. I have to wait for this thing back. <laughs> mm. And this poor person has to do paperwork for something they didn't, wow. absolutely did not have to do. Yeah. But it's things like that where I just was like... Yeah, and that's... <laughs> Unfortunately for me, if this were an older white man, I would have yelled at him. Mm-hmm. Well, I probably, like... I, I this, was feel... like, this is a younger black man. I am a white Slavic woman. Mm. I'm like, you know what? Not worth it. <laughs> mm. Like, it's xenophobic, mm-hmm. but this is not worth any of this. Yeah. it's. I think that's what, like, that's what I have. I don't know. There's specific people that I have. I think particularly older generations, like older family friends of mine, I'll, I'll have a hard time... Because, like, I'll talk about a situation like this, you know, about, like, people having this internalized xenophobia where they make assumptions mm. such as, you know, the the instance with you, such as this instance with Gloriana, where they're, like, calling her, they're assuming that she's a nanny because she's of Latin descent. Um, she's younger. And she's younger. And then and then this, this person that I'm talking to about this will say, oh, but it's not because they're trying to be mean. And it's like, no, I know it's not because they're trying to be mean, but uh, but it, saying that it's, like, not... Being saying, able to come up to someone and say, listen, I know you're not trying to be mean. And this is going back to, like, the whole meltdown mm-hmm. thing, right? They need the same thing you do, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that you need to say, listen, I understand that's what you're saying, however. <laughs> yeah, it's like you need to... Like, I feel like sometimes... I don't know, the specific person that I was having this specific conversation was wasn't understanding um, the fact that it's deeper, that it's like, it's not a surface, yeah. like uh, on the yeah. surface. It's like the, what led to that thinking is deeper. You have deeper. to rethink the way you think and this person was not prepared to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. And yeah. it's not something that it's, I don't know. It takes a lot of reflection. It's it's like unfortunately with a lot of people, it's not something that I can just no, get them to understand. The yeah. Situations. Like we're used to having to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um. 
So let's see. There's one more question I have for you. Uh, what would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions and misunderstandings that people have about ADHD for you and in general? The other thing I've been labeled one that uh, you have to be a young white kid and male to have it. Mm. Similar to to autism for me, like what I've been, what I've felt from a lot of people is that they have this stereotypical idea of the only kind of autistics that that they that they see or that they picture in their head is rain the man. yeah what was young that rain man. young, young rain, rain man, man. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> or like a non-speaking young white boy you know like very stereotypical ideas like you know they would usually never even think of an autistic woman uh an autistic girl you know like uh, an autistic black person an autistic you know and not like autistic people from different uh ethnicities from different unfortunately a lot of young autistic black people get shot true uh which is terrible because they don't understand social norms it's actually a horrific statistic yeah 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 Mm -hmm. uh yeah no like and it's it's because there's just such little understanding and it's it's not just the fact that it's little understanding is that it's the stigmatized understanding and it's the unwillingness to sort of go oh so that's not what it is yeah exactly and even like they're like well that's really that's 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 not that doesn't work for me I that, keep, that i'm gonna have to think way too yeah. hard about this subject mm-hmm. and i don't want to and i don't have the time it's you know just it's it, i can't fit it into my schedule is, yeah. is the sort of mm-hmm. it's not convenient for me that you don't fit into this thing yeah it's so like therefore you must be wrong and then people get annoyed like i mean we talked about this at at length in our last episode episode 65 but like i keep seeing it so i'm just gonna mention it again yeah. like major newspapers uh publishing articles like by these these highly ableist articles which are basically constantly criticizing the increased online presence of ADHD and autistic folks and um, I think it's caused by social media that social media is evil yes there's the, a wonderful mm. article in New York Times today about how parrots like to choose to watch parrot friends and call them on video chat <laughs> I will also send it to you so you can put it in the show notes. It is delightful and it shows a lot of promise for what social media can do for people and animals mm-hmm. if it is used for good. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just because there's this 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 one specific article, I something that really I mean the whole article bothered me, but um, this one part that really bothered me was the the person um, saying that like disabilities used to be like she literally said in the article that it used to be something to be ashamed of and like like she's think she's saying this like oh, she, is it now cool is it cool to have disabilities is it someone should tell me who to, who didn't tell me where's my sticker where's my cool boy badge <laughs> yeah it's like i mean i get it that she's like it's just like she's saying that like, because the whole thing was about how uncomfortable 
she is with people like talking openly and embracing the more positive traits of things like well, autism. Sorry, <laughs> I don't mean that, but that's that's basically what people like her have been telling us. Our no, it's lives. true. It's true. You're not evolving. <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, she's like. She's annoyed. Like, she's literally, like, the the whole, like, throughout the article, she's, like, annoyed at, like, oh, um, pages about happy stimming and cartoons. And it's, like, literally, you can tell the tone of her writing. She's so upset. She's so deeply annoyed and frustrated by, by autistic people embracing themselves and she well, feels she like, literally, happy. this feels like, reading this article, she feels like we need to go into a room, close the door, crawl into a corner, and feel ashamed. Ooh, like, <laughs> like, that's like, <laughs> literally, yeah, like. Why did neurodivergence bully her as a child? Just, they just stare at her while she looked at them and didn't know what was happening. Did she find it awkward? Well, guess what? You're basically one of us now. Well, mm -hmm. yeah. So that awkward feeling yeah. of not being included. We get mm -hmm. you, honey. We understand. Yeah, we, we get you. <laughs> if you don't mind us, the legs up occasionally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I hope you. <sighs> oh, sorry. That during my day. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh God. It's just... I'm upset about it, but there's a point where it's just ridiculous. Yeah, there like, is a point where it's just... I isolated, and it's so mm -hmm. awkward, and I don't know what to do, and it's affecting my everyday life. I'm like, mm -hmm. preach, honey, preach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyways, yeah, that's... I I just, yeah, I wanted to mention We that. wish her well. We hope yeah, we wish good. her well. We do. We wish her well. Um. So, yes. This is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, this has been great. I think those are all the questions I had. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to, to add anything else, but, um, you know, I just oh, want to... Thank you so much for yeah. taking this extended period of time to listen to me blather on. <laughs> no, it was, and you, same to you, listening to me blather on. Always a joy to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. And happy well. 60th. Oh, 90th. 90th, sorry. See, just Six month anniversary. Flipped it around. Yeah, 90th episode. Yeah, it's also the six month anniversary. That's why you probably uh, yeah, that's what I thought of six. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so thank you. Um, and yeah, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see you next time.